I am endlessly fascinated by the borderland history and the ways in which things that happened 200 years ago still echo today. I think I fashion myself as a student of history. I don't think anything that happens in our contemporary world is isolated or in a vacuum from what happened before. And so I want to do more stories about border culture. Washington Post reporter Arelis Hernandez may call San Antonio home, but she spends a lot of time on the border and in South Texas. Welcome to part two of our episode with Arelis Hernandez, where we'll discuss her coverage of the tragedy in Uvalde, the future of journalism, and what we might expect in her future coverage of our region. I want to get to a, a more serious topic here, and that's Uvalde. A horrific tragedy in Texas, not only for the community, but for the state and for the nation. Where were you and what were you doing when you first heard that this was happening? I was at the hair salon here in San Antonio. My okay. parents had come to my house because we were all going to fly to vacation to Hawaii in a few days later. And so I was taking my mom to get her hair done when I got the first ping from an editor about something happening in Uvalde. So I immediately checked the Facebook page, called, you know, the, the local police department. I had maybe stopped in Uvalde twice before all of this happened on my ways to Del Rio or Laredo or to other places. Yes. And had, you know, was familiar with some of the officials, who, but not everyone. And I could not get any straight answers from anyone. And if you recall, they were, the school system was updating on the Facebook page. And at first it said, there's a shooting at the school. Looks like one person shot. And that was sort of like, okay, what do we do as a news organization now that we're, these things unfortunately happen so often that we need to wait at least like four people to be killed for it to be, you know, a mass killing. And something about this one, my editor had the right instinct, and she just said, you just have to go. So I left my mom half haircut, took her home, and, like, sped in my car. Um, I think I got there. Uvalde's a little over an hour. Yeah, it's an hour and 15 minutes. But on the way, like, I'm calling everyone. I'm calling all of my sources on the border who might have, you know, elected officials, that is, who might know or have heard from someone. I called... uh, Sources in LaSalle County and Catula, uh, because I knew that other agencies, if it was as bad as we were suspecting it was going to be, that other agencies uh, from neighboring counties were going to be called in. And I still, like, no one knew. It was like a total blackout of information for at least an hour and a half. And then I called the county judge of a neighboring uh, county, and he said, Arelis, like, it's like 30 to 50 people shot. And it turned out that wasn't true, but I remember the feeling I was maybe 20 minutes outside of Uvalde and like feeling absolute dread and then recognizing the last time that I had felt that way. And that was the morning of the nightclub shooting in Orlando. So you get there and do you go straight to the school, I assume? I I sort of passed by the Civic Center, took a look. And didn't see much activity, just saw some reporters and kept going straight to the school. When I got to the intersection right in front of the school and I see, you know, the gaggle of some of the media just starting to to populate. But there were there weren't neighbors around, there was no one around. So I was like, I gotta find someone to talk to. So I, I parked my car down the street, 
I start walking and I see people in front of their houses crying and I start walking and they wave me off. And so I said, okay. And so I just kept walking down the street, um, two blocks from the school. And this is a thing that comes up in, in my reporting a lot. Like I go to houses of worship uh, in crises like this because I feel drawn to them. And I saw a phone number on this church sign and I called it and Pastor Jaime Cabrales uh, answered and was like, if you stay right there, I'll come right now. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I stood outside this church, and a woman comes out of the house next door, um, and it's Pastor Jaime's wife, Mar- uh, Marcela Cabrales, and a nine-year-old behind her with a litter of puppies sort of following behind. Turns out that uh, that nine-year-old Jalisa was inside the school when all of this went down, and Marcela was in the funeral home across the street where she was sort of begged by officials to minister to some of the kids who had been evacuated from from the school, the kids and, and the teachers. And they t- both told me these horrific stories. And I just like did not know what to do with myself and just started. I just burst into tears. Like, here we go again. I don't, I don't think anyone knew, um, as we all know now, how long it took for the complete story to to come out. It was ironic that there was a funeral home across the street. And then as we approached the storytelling from the Department of Public Safety, uh, there was mixed messaging that seemed to be coming out. I think there was just confusion as to the number of people that had been shot and the number of people that had passed. And so it seemed to be quite chaotic from a media information trying to share with the rest of the world what had happened here and what was happening. Oh, it was probably the most chaotic policing. And I've covered cops for a long time um, and been at many, many, many crime scenes covered, unfortunately, many mass shootings. And this was by far the most chaotic, the most disjointed and that's why I didn't stay at the scene, right? Because there was nothing happening. There was no one providing information. And so after I, I met Marcela and, and Jess, Jalisa, I went back to the school scene. And, you know, there was Eric Estrada and you know, Lieutenant Chris Olivares from DPS, who I had had interactions with on border stuff. And they were the, like, sole two people who were providing any kind of information. And you had, and it wasn't like an, with a press conference, he was... You know, if you went up to him and you asked him, hey, Chris, like, what's happening? Like, what's going on? He would give you some details, but it's, it's he didn't know himself. Um, right. It seemed that, that, that the briefings didn't hadn't happened. And and I tried calling Uvalde police and they just weren't willing. It's DPS's scenes now. It's DPS's scene. And so, like, I've never been in a situation where we were in the dark for so long uh, about what was happening. And, you know, hindsight is, is 2020 now, and, and I don't want to mislead any of your listeners, but there's definitely something about that scene that felt off from the very beginning. And I actually just, I don't know how to describe it. I think that what we've learned from the video that you did around the one year anniversary mark was we thought on the outside how chaotic it was, and your video showed us how chaotic it was inside because you had Uvalde school police, Uvalde PD, local sheriff, uh, border patrol, DPS, and I'm sure I'm missing a couple of others. Neighboring jurisdictions, yeah. Okay, yeah, people who had come to, I know, I think San Antonio sent PD and 
perhaps sheriff deputies the to go. Constables as well. Exactly. So if anyone hasn't seen this video, I highly encourage them to watch it. The Washington Post conducted a months-long investigation to reveal that several other senior or supervising officers, not just Arredondo, played integral roles in the failures that day. The Post identified at least seven officers who knew there was shooting in classrooms but failed to immediately stop the gunmen, even as evidence mounted that children and teachers were inside. Some were the first to arrive on the scene. Others were specifically called upon to intervene. All remain on the force. You not only put this together with some of your colleagues, but you narrated it. And what you were able to show was the confusion on the inside that none of us knew was occurring. And you described through the body cam footage and the school security cameras which agencies were responding, who was reporting to who, trying to find out who is the the decision maker here and the confusion that occurred. They would move forward and then retreat and move forward and retreat, trying to figure everything out. They were seeking the the body shields and waiting for some of that before they tried to storm in. But I want you to tell me what seemed so striking to me was how the entire situation turned on a single word, barricaded. Tell me about that. Yes. So very early on, it was clear there wasn't a lot of communication happening between the same agency or even interagency, right, about what what was actually going on. And the I think it was Daniel Coronado is, is who we uh, identified in that, who said he's barricaded and it came over one of the radios and somehow it was it ricocheted and that was the message that everyone got. And what that means when it's a barricaded subject, when that's a determination, um, the whole posture of the operation and the law enforcement response changes. An active shooter situation demands that you go immediately to go and take that shooter out no matter, you know, what the cost. We know that re- reality is different. But with a barricaded subject, it requires a different set of reactions, different set of decisions. And in this case, resulted in a delay that was, you know, we don't. We ultimately don't know if anyone would have survived. Uh, we, we had done a previous story about three people in particular who had pulses, um, you know, and and bled out, uh, as far as we understand it, based on their injuries and what the families told Because us, of the delay. Because of the delay. But it was, I don't know if it was a mistake. I don't know if it was intentional. I don't know if it was fear. And I'm not in the business of interpreting people's motivations. But that completely slowed everything down. And as long as it was a barricaded subject, the impetus to get into that classroom and stop the shooting was not as strong as it would be if it was an active shooter. And I should mention that even after barricaded was you know ricocheted over the the radios, there was still shooting that take place, and we and we indicate you, that in the video. And well, you can hear the you can hear the shots. You can hear the shots. And so, do you believe that this is an example of something that should be taught in law enforcement training? What happened in Uvalde? 
I think every time one of these things happen, um, and I t- we talked to lots of law enforcement experts and, and folks themselves who had presided and been incident commanders in, in active shooter situations, I think you learn from each one of these. But this one in particular, I think, speaks more to the resources and training at, you know, in small rural departments um, and the the kinds of things that we are asking of our law enforcement to do needs to change with the kinds of weapons that we have out there in in society. So yes, I do think that this is a, a training issue. As part of our research, we tried to figure out what kind of training each officer that responded in in this particular situation had, how far in that training they had gotten. There was some indication, we didn't go too deeply into it. There was some indication, though, that uh, the incentives for advanced training of this kind in, within the law enforcement world and culture are not sufficient to get them to go get this training or that they're not as stringent as perhaps they, they might have to be. And, and things have changed. The state of Texas has required more and more of this kind of training. But um, there were different models that... I think there there just isn't a consensus nationwide about what the best way to do that. There are models that are um, that have been tried that are seem to be better. Like if, if for anyone who saw the Nashville shooting, it was a different situation. It was a different set of circumstances. But the model that they employed of having a team of officers go from one victim to the next, and I think that at least you know a paramedic or someone stayed with uh, anyone who was shot or injured. That's a particular model that is not you know used throughout Texas. But we talked to, you know, a Dallas expert about this kind of thing. It's not in big cities, you can expect that in a place like Uvalde, you can't whether you should expect it from the Department of Public Safety in Texas is a completely other question. I think it's just a gentle reminder that this can happen anywhere, anytime to anyone. And everyone should be prepared. I'm assuming that you ran across um, our San Antonio Archbishop Gustavo Garcia Sier in your reporting during Uvalde. He seemed to be at, down there all the time. I think he attended or celebrated. And I, when I say celebrated, I mean that in a religious term. You celebrate mass. He conducted the funerals, uh, the funeral masses. But I'm assuming that you came across him. I think once or twice. I don't know if we got a, you know, full-throated interview opportunity. Um, but I know that particularly the Catholic Church locally was very involved. And I know that he was presiding over those funerals. And this was shortly after the 53 migrants uh, who had died in the back of an 18-wheeler. And he did the funerals for them as well. And so... That poor man is a saint, and I have the utmost respect for him for what he does and what he bears for the sake of the community and for humanity. I came across many different kinds of clergy people in in and out of Uvalde who were helping and and honestly hurting uh, at different times throughout all of this, uh, but that's fodder for some other piece in the future. Well, speaking of the future, let's talk about what else you're working on. What do you see up ahead? What are you What are you working on? What uh, beyond the elections? What other border stories or what other San Antonio, South Texas stories um, are are you looking at or are talking about or thinking about? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I'm sort of morphing. My beat is morphing just a little bit uh, because I 
I'm still very, very interested in Puerto Rico. So I spend quite a bit of time in, in Puerto Rico doing investigative work because I've spent the last six years traveling back and forth and doing accountability work there. So I have something coming out on, on Puerto Rico soon. But I am endlessly fascinated by the borderland history uh, and the ways in which things that happened 200, 100 years ago still echo today. Uh, and I've been recently uh, reading Monica Munoz's Martinez's book, uh, The Justice Never Leaves Us, about a, an era of anti-Mexican violence uh, in the borderlands. And just reading about that era at the turn of the century, particularly early 20th century, and some of the rhetoric, some of the political statements, it sounds a lot like what we're hearing nowadays. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I think I fashion myself as a student of history. Uh, I don't think anything that happens in our contemporary world is isolated or in a vacuum from what happened before. And so I've been trying to get myself to, to you know, immerse myself in, in borderland history, everything from the Spanish land grants to the Texas Rangers to the salt wars in far west Texas near El Paso. And what I'd like to do is a series of stories about looking at this history of a unique people, of a unique region and bring that to the present. Uh, like I haven't had enough. I want to do more stories about border culture and border people, not just not just the immigration part of this, but about the fascinating amount of cultural work that's happening um, in the valley and further upriver in Laredo and, and Del Rio, um, because I, I think this is a rich region uh, that deserves a lot more attention and would bring a lot more understanding to something like voting patterns during the election. <laughs> you know, uh, there are a million stories from the border. And one of them, for example, that comes to mind is the Qualia Winery in Del Rio, yes. which is my hometown. Uh, they were able to stay open during Prohibition because they got a special dispensation to produce wine for Catholic uh, churches. The oldest and bonded winery in Texas, there right? There you go. <laughs> uh, and, you know, from from Brownsville to El Paso, uh, there are a lot of interesting things. Laredo was a town that was founded by Spaniards. And so Laredo hasn't seen the level of discrimination that other border towns have. And I believe that goes back to the notion that they were founded by Spaniards. And so the Latino families in Laredo were the ones that held the land, the wealth, and the political power. The other border towns were founded predominantly by Anglos, and the Latinos tended to be the sheep shearers and the goat herders, and they did not have the benefit of the wealth and the power like Laredo did. So Laredo has this own unique culture unto itself, but they all have a fascinating history and they have stories to be told. And I, I hope you're, you're able to go tell some of them. I oh look yeah, no, to... I'm, I'm, I'm traipsing around South Texas with a, with a recorder and a microphone interviewing uh, centenarians about things that happened, you know, a hundred years ago. So I have something hopefully coming out soon about, um, this year's the Texas Ranger Bicentennial. Yes. And uh, depending on who you ask, that's uh, um, something to remember. <laughs> <laughs> or forget. <laughs> or forget, right, exactly. And so I, I want to get into to some of that um, because it's, it, you know, I resist easy narratives. That's sort of been the theme of, of my of my work. And I always want to try to resist the, the easy narrative and, and get into the complicated nuance. It probably leaves readers very unsatisfied, but that's okay with me. 
Well, I think that's a good thing because sometimes uh, you only hear a certain part of history or that's the part that often gets told. And then when you ask someone, where did that come from? I don't know. I've just been hearing it. And no one ever questioned it or challenged it. You know, during predominantly during the from the Spanish Inquisition through World War II, all the Jews that escaped Europe that came to the United States, many of them settled along the um the Texas-Mexico border. And so you have that unique uh, culture as well. This oh, San Ignacio and the Conversos that lived on that. Uh, was, is it a fort? What is it? Uh, it's not far from Laredo, is it, San Ignacio? No, it's not. It's just, it's probably 30, 40 minutes south. Right, exactly. And yes. I, I think it, the people who were... Um, who had settled it or who originally built it were conversos, this group of people yes. that you talked about, that Jews who had uh, converted to or converted in name only yeah. to Catholicism <laughs> to, for safety reasons. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's a fascinating story. So I want to end on this note. You work for a nationally recognized, prestigious publication, The Washington Post. We saw what happened in Kansas with the raid of the small town newspaper. We've seen in Texas the slow demise of the Austin bureaus for newspapers and TVs and radio stations all over the state. How do you see the changing landscape and and what do you see as the the future of journalism? I get the sense that in many communities that don't have newspapers that are instead relying on Facebook pages and these other sort of community forums that are needed as well, um, that there is a, a yearning for truth and a distillation of facts is absent in the discourse, and it's reactionary. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't want to name the town, but I'm thinking of a particular place that lost its newspaper and instead, you know, has been replaced by the, these outraged disc jockeys locally who say that they're about news and, and you know, the, as Marty Baron would say, dispassionate distillation of facts, but they're not. <laughs> They're definitely well, not. Well, you, you mentioned Del Rio earlier. That's my hometown. And I know I used to work for the Del Rio News Herald as a summer job between high school and college as an intern, basically. The Del Rio News Herald closed down and they're left without a newspaper. The Rear Grand Valley newspapers that are the McAllen Monitor, the Valley Morning Star in Harlingen and the Brownsville Herald have gone from printing seven days a week to printing three days a week and, and push. So they still exist, but it's they're moving more people to the digital space. But I would assume the total vacuum when a paper closes or any news entity closes, it, it makes it much harder to get news on a regular basis. Right. And it's not just even about these like very sensitive issues that come up in any community. It's It's the things like you know the the high school football game and who was the star at the at the game it, it these ties that bind us in the community because we are aware of each other and we know each other's stories and we're using this conduit to draw ourselves closer at least in my ideal sense of newspaper journalism right those are frayed uh, and yes to some degree the digital space can help repair some of those ties, but it also can absolutely like take a machete to it as well and silo people into these different um, rooms. And if, you know, I hate to use that term, but echo chambers 
uh, about, you know, and, and people are disconnected from each other. News is not just about, you know, politics or immigration or, again, controversial subjects. It's also about, like, being aware of the changes in the law so that when you file your tax returns, you know exactly what you're doing. You're aware of what's happening, you know, of the things you need to keep in mind of or understanding when the city is providing something for free, like fruit trees or something like that. You know, these things that, again, bind us together as a community and and help strengthen the social contract between neighbors, between dwellers of the same space. All of that is compromised when you don't have sort of a consensus or a space or a public forum that is all about distilling the truth. It doesn't mean that everyone will land at the same truth, but at the very least, we can come together in a public space and say, this is what I understand about this issue and what can we parse these things out? And I mean, it's a, it's increasingly tough job for journalists to do to try and, you know, be, be the go-between, if you will. I'm not sure if you understand the relevance of something you just said, but I'm going to make an observation of it. Despite being a native of Washington, D.C., your recognition that high school football is so important means you're becoming more and more Texan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. Every time I call home, my dad's like, are you at Tejana now? And I'm like, no, far from it. I think I don't think I've earned that by any degree. But yes, no, no, no. I've I've. Again, I'm enamored by by you know parts of the culture and the way that Texas does things, particularly South Texas. I'm just totally in love with South Texas. So I'm I'm reminded of I think it was 1994 when Senator Phil Graham and Lloyd Doggett were running against each other, and they were debating at a local PBS station, and Lloyd Doggett kept saying, "It was a congressman today," but he kept saying. Well, I know the average Texan watching tonight believes, like I do, that we should do this. And I know the average Texan watching tonight believes, like I do, that we should focus on this other issue as well. And then when it came back for Phil Graham's response, he came back and said, I guess that's the difference between you and me, Lloyd. Uh, The average Texan is not watching this debate. It's Friday night. They're at a high school football game. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, but anyway, well, where can people find you? How do they find you on Twitter? Where can they send you thoughts, ideas, a story, uh, story ideas? Yeah. Yeah. My email is my first name, A-R-E-L-I-S dot Hernandez, H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z at washpost.com, W-A-S-H-P-O-S-T.com. And my handle on Twitter is, or X formerly known as Twitter uh, is my first name, A-R-E-L-I-S-R-H-D-Z. So at A-R-E-L-I-S-R-H-D-Z, uh, that's my handle. Feel free. I take emails. I usually give my phone number out willy-nilly. I won't do that here on the <laughs> air. Um, but I, I, I'm, I think I'm pretty easy to find. And we are going to include in the show notes of this podcast episode the link to watch the video from Uvalde. And I don't know if I did this, but... Would you mention your colleagues who helped you put that piece together? Yes, yes. Uh, Sarah Kalen um, and Joyce Lee of the video forensics team. Um, we we had to go through quite a bit of graphic material to pull that together. Well, Adeli Sedanandes, thank you for joining us. We look forward to, to more stories, and and I hope people from uh, from the border uh, send you story ideas on our, so rich, our rich history and culture. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you. 
This concludes the second installment of our episode on San Antonio-based Washington Post reporter Arely Hernandez. Beyond the Bite is a production of Aldrete Strategic Partners and is edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. As always, we thank you for listening.